0: i Ivy Juiva, and this is Future of Food. Timothy Wise is a senior advisor with the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy in Minneapolis. His most recent book, Eating Tomorrow, Agribusiness, Family, Farmers, and the Battle for the Future of Food, delves into small versus large-scale agriculture and the dominant power of agribusiness firms. Tim is also a senior researcher fellow at Tuft University's Global Development and Environmental Institute, and an advisor at the Small Planet Institute, where he previously directed its land and food rights program. We've long wanted to do an episode at Future of Food about where to get good information about food and the climate crisis. We've wanted to identify which organizations might be giving us misleading information about food and climate my interview with Tim is a first step toward understanding who controls what you know about the food you eat. Here's my conversation with Timothy Wise. Timothy, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So your book, the title is Eating Tomorrow, and that certainly captures the challenge we're facing here. I'm curious why you chose that title.
1: It took a while to get to that title, actually. The book project took a good five years in the making. And for most of the project, I really didn't have a a working title I liked. That title actually came from my colleague at the Small Planet Institute, Francis Moore LaPay, um, author of Diet for a Small Planet and 18 other books. So she knows her book titles. And she met me early on before I was even working with her directly, um, for a, to look at a book proposal, and we met over lunch in Cambridge. She gave me great advice on the book. We couldn't brainstorm a new book title, and I'm walking home from the from the lunch, and my cell phone rings, and I answer it, and I said, "And I said, hi, Frankie." And she said, "Tim, what about eating tomorrow?" And I, <laughs> I honestly, I honestly said, "Well, Frankie, I really enjoyed our lunch. I could do it again tomorrow <laughs> if you really want to." And she said, "No, no, no, you booked. So that's where the, that's where the title comes from." And it. it Honestly, it's grown on me as, as I've been out talking about the book because it really captures the, the core message. The double meaning really captures the core messages of the book that we're not doing a great job of helping everyone eat today. There's nearly a billion people who are chronically hungry, and eating tomorrow is a more daunting challenge with climate change looming. Absolutely. But the way we're producing our food on industrial scale chemical-intensive farms is quite literally devouring the natural resource base, the soil, the water, the seeds, the climate on which future food production depends. So we're quite literally eating our collective tomorrows by continuing to farm this way, and that's really what the book is about.
0: And yet you say that most of the world is fed by these small-scale farmers.
1: Yeah, that's right. The developing world where hunger is the most severe is not fed by the United States. This idea that we feed the world is just a a very self-justifying rationalization for our our large-scale agricultural operations. 70% of the food consumed in developing countries is grown in those countries, and the majority of that is grown by small-scale farmers. So they are the ones largely feeding the hungry world.
0: So if if they're feeding the hungry world and but but those countries people are still going hungry in those countries, how are the small farmers the solution?
1: Well, they've been they haven't gotten the kind of investment and support that they need. Their soils are degraded, they uh, they often don't have enough land to grow enough food and their traditional practices, which can are often more sustainable than the ones that are being promoted through projects like the Alliance for a Green Revolution for Africa, are are effectively being undermined by these um, technology driven projects. So they very much need investment and support. It's just they don't need the kind that we're giving them.
0: and why why is agribusiness undermining these small farmers?
1: well agribusiness is like any other business in that it exists to make and sell products and make a profit africa is um the the region that has uh, been the least penetrated by seed companies uh, fertilizer companies pesticide companies and the like and So it represents, it's where population is growing, where there's going to be a rising demand for food. So agribusiness firms look at that and say, future market. And they don't want that future market to be fed by efficient, sustainable, individual, small-scale farmers using Mm -hmm. uh, local technologies. They want to sell their seeds and their fertilizers and their pesticides.
0: So help us understand a little bit about how small farmers are better for the planet in the age of the climate crisis.
1: It's actually not quite a question of small versus large. It's a question. I mean, there is that debate and that discussion. And it's it's certainly true that small scale farmers as a whole, and the research bears this out, more actively manage their farms and are therefore able to actively manage the resources on their farms in more sustainable ways. So you think about the massive multi-thousand acre soybean farm in the United States or Brazil, Mm -hmm. for that matter. Mm -hmm. The only way to farm that is with massive technology and massive doses of agrochemicals. So smaller scale farming lends itself to more active resource management. That's the general truth. In practice, what it really comes down to is how the farm is being managed. And small-scale farmers are, by and large, far more attentive to and and open to more ecological ways of farming. Many are already farming ecologically, but not that efficiently because they don't have good good support Mm -hmm. or their soils are degraded. So, focusing on Increasing the productivity of those small-scale farmers, their access to food-producing resources is really the the best way to, one, address hunger, because those same farmers are among the largest group of chronically hungry in the world.
0: You're saying this, the, the farmers themselves are going
1: hungry? Absolutely. The, the largest group, the majority of the chronically hungry in the world are... Um, are farmers or are living in farming communities where they, their families are dependent on, on agriculture.
0: Because they're having to sell most of what they grow? No,
1: because, often because they can't even grow a surplus in some years to sell. So they're struggling to feed their families year to year with climate change making that all the more daunting. The obvious solution is to give those farmers more land and resources, good land and resources to grow more food for themselves, and then when they grow a surplus for their communities and their in their countries. Uh, but that's really not what policymakers are doing. They're really favoring agribusiness as the solution.
0: Right. And I, I definitely want to talk to you about why that is the case and how, how that's taking place. But I want to back up for a second and understand a little bit better how these small farmers are are able to grow in a more ecologically sound manner, because you mentioned the large amount of chemical inputs necessary on the larger scale farms. But how, how is that related to climate change specifically?
1: A lot of the inputs are fossil fuel based. Fertilizer in particular is made with uh, heavy use of, mm. uh, of natural gas. Um, really? Yeah. It's a fossil fuel input. And so some people like Michael Pollan and others talk about farming, farming with oil. That what we're essentially doing is harvesting oil when we harvest food off of industrial scale farms because oh the well the machines use fossil fuels okay. and so that's why it's so paradoxical that a project like the Green Revolution for Africa is promoting two farmers who don't now use fossil fuel inputs. The and use these of are fossi-
0: smaller farms,
1: smaller farms are, uh-huh. are promoting the use of fossil fuel inputs when the climate crisis tells you that that's exactly the wrong way to go.
0: You're saying smaller farms are promoting? It's not the smaller farms that are promoting the fossil fuel inputs. No,
1: the the development experts and the programs like the Alliance for Green Revolution in Africa are trying to push and subsidize the use of fossil fuel inputs by small-scale farmers.
0: Oh, my gosh. This is the green revolution that's doing this?
1: Yeah. The green revolution. If that's a, that's often a concept that people get confused about, the green revolution was the first green revolution was the one that took place in India and parts of Latin, Asia and parts of Latin America in the fifties and sixties and seventies, and it was the the attempt the first major use of chemicals and uh, so called high yield seed varieties to increase food production. Norman Borlaug won a Nobel Prize for his invention of the uh, development of a high-yield wheat variety that would, would produce well. And that Green Revolution was called the Green Revolution not because anyone thought it was environmentally sound. In fact, mm-hmm. even at the time, people were decrying the environmental uh, negative environmental impacts of these technologies. It was called the Green Revolution because at the time when communism was on the rise in the developing world, it was the alternative to the Red Revolution.
0: Ha! No kidding.
1: That is a true fact.
0: Okay. So definitely it's, it's a bit of a misnomer as far as we think of green, greening anything today.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And so the new Green Revolution for Africa is an attempt to apply new seed technologies to Africa's particular conditions and bring its own green revolution oh, along dear. the lines of high input agriculture like we did. Okay.
0: In- and why is this the approach that is being supported by policy worldwide?
1: Well, that's a th- there's a complicated answer to that and a simple answer to that. Um, the simple answer to that, which is the one that I really try to focus people's attention on in my book, is that there are a lot of very powerful business interests that stand to gain by promoting these technologies, and they tend to be the ones who have influence in international development agencies, in national governments, particularly in in rich countries um, like the United States. And so, agribusiness really drives policy in a lot of ways that I saw all over the world, in big ways and small. And the the Green Revolution is the perfect program for Big agriculture because wow. you get that uh, promotion in a, in a place like Africa and you get governments actually providing subsidies to small-scale farmers so they can buy these inputs that they wouldn't otherwise be able to afford. Yeah, The goal is to actually get them kind of hooked on those inputs. Hopefully, they think the inputs will, they hope the inputs will increase their productivity to the point where they can afford more of them. Right. They'll apply more inputs and sales go up for agribusiness. That turns out not to really be happening very much anywhere. Poor governments using lots of vast shares of their agricultural development budgets to subsidize the purchase of these inputs with the, the multinational seed and fertilizer companies pocketing the, the profits.
0: Because we're told that that has the best chance of feeding the world's growing population.
1: Right. That's the complicated answer is that there's you know active debate in the international development community over what the best way to develop agriculture is. And one side argues that the only way Africa will ever feed itself is through the use of these fertilizers and and improved seeds, that their local seeds and their local soils can never feed them, and that this is the only way to do it. And any good soil scientist will tell you that you have to do way more than put Fertilizer onto a farm to improve the quality of the soil and the fertility of the soil in the long term.
0: What do they recommend?
1: They'd recommend, they'd say that building the organic matter of soil is the absolute building block of healthy soil and that you don't do that with chemical fertilizers. And I saw all over the world farmers using those techniques. They use compost in, on their farms instead of chemical fertilizers, which builds uh, organic matter. They intercrop different crops at the, at the same time in the fields, which provides both uh, nutrients from one crop to the other and organic matter in the soil as well. They mulch. They do all kinds of conservation practices. The Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa, a large network that's been supporting agroecological agricultural practices among its Many, many members is, you know, has been teaching farmers how to make biofertilizers, you know, using local resources, manure and, and hay and, and other inputs locally to basically manufacture their own biofertilizers that will be as good or better in the short run than chemical fertilizers and way better in the long run for soil. One of the downsides of, of farming Say a cornfield year after year in corn with count um, fertilizers is that it does nothing for the fertility of the soil. It actually makes it worse.
0: So long term, you not only lower the nutrition of food because the soil is so depleted, but you're actually over time going to lower the land's ability to. I I read recently that. I think the UN had said that we only have a certain amount of harvest left before the land is like not able to even sustain.
1: At a global level, soil erosion and, and soil degradation is, is, is an unseen crisis. It's, um, it's a slow-moving crisis, so people don't pay attention. And they often treat the treat the illness of lack of soil fertility with a cure that may be worse than the, than the illness right. itself, right. which is chemical fertilizers. So
0: it feels like we're in this, we're caught between a rock and a hard place here because we have, on the one hand, these large scale industrial farms that are depleting the soil, temporarily feeding people because they're receiving all the resources from governments worldwide. But then on the other hand, we have these small farmers that you're saying produce 70% of our food, but are, the farmers are actually starving themselves and they're not able to produce what they otherwise could produce because they're not being given the resources they need to really thrive. How is agribusiness having this power to... It sounds like you know one of our um, interviews earlier in the season was Dr. Vandana Shiva who talks about agribusiness as hijacking the global food supply. That was the name of her book. Is the, the subtitle was The Hijacking of the Global Food supplies. So how does this look here in the United States?
1: Oh, well, agribusiness spends more than the defense industry on lobbying in Washington. The last count I saw was $133 million a year, and that's just for the Congress. At the state level, in agriculture states like Iowa, it's enormous. And their influence is even more outsized. So they, they wield enormous political power because money in politics is is a scourge in the United States and it has way too much influence on what decisions get made. I talked to a uh, really interesting agricultural scientist named Matt Liebman at Iowa State who has been doing this experimental farm trying to find ways to take the usual You know, Iowa is one big uh, blanket of corn and soybeans, usually grown in rotation um, on a farm, part of the land in soy, part in corn, and then they switch them. He experimented on his farm, uh, experimental farm that he had with Iowa State, um, with adding a, a third rotation of crops, a grass that would be more perennial, would hold the Hold the soil in place, would filter the water, would have all kinds of additional benefits. And studied that over time and found that indeed on his experimental farm, fertilizer use went down 85%, pesticide use went down 97%, soil erosion was halted entirely, mm. water pollution was halted entirely. Wow. And I said to Matt, Well, this is the win win solution everybody's looking for. How many farmers are using it? And he said, Almost none. And I was like, why? And he said, well, I basically couldn't have invented a, uh, a program that more directly affected more of the state's agribusinesses. And all you have to do is think about it. Coke Industries, which produces fertilizer, what interest are they going to have in an 85% reduction in fertilizer use? Monsanto, an 80, a 97% reduction in herbicide use?
0: But why can't the farmers themselves implement it? How are agribusinesses preventing the farmers from knowing what's best for them?
1: Well, the farmers are locked into a system that um, really decreases the the choices they can make individually. Um, If you think about it, if they're going to switch all of their, one proposal is that they switch a third of their land into grasslands like this and and use it for pasture and raise beef cattle, grass-fed beef cattle. Which would be a massive environmental improvement. So is one case where where beef would be an improvement over what they're doing now,
0: right? Um, because the the KFOs, the concentrated animal feeding uh, operations, are yeah, and you get
1: and you'd get manure recycled into the land instead of um, otherwise you would get these perennial grasses in in the land long term. Right. And he's he argues, you know, they argue that farmers could get a. A premium price for grass-fed beef, for which there's now a market. But mm-hmm. they can't invent a market for grass-fed beef. In other words, the only thing that there's buyers for right now on their farms is corn and soybeans. That's what people will buy. That's what the big agribusiness firms, that's what Cargill is lined up to buy. They have ethanol plants lined up to buy their corn. They have Smithfield and Tyson and factory farms lined up to buy, buy corn and soybeans. Um, they want them cheap. They pay for them. Um, it's it's hard for an individual farmer to buck that trend.
0: Uh, so what's without, the without markets
1: here? to support it,
0: right? I mean that makes total sense. So the 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 problem it sounds like is in the demand, and I, I think most people are understanding the value of, for example, organic produce. Those sales seems to rise. You know, at least they have trended towards increasing over the last couple of decades. Isn't that the case?
1: In general, that's the case, and that and that is one source of demand. But you think about uh, the great rise in organic doesn't have it surpassing four percent of of total US, sales yeah, of total sales demand. And in a place like Iowa, I do know a guy. When well, a guy I interviewed for the for the for the Iowa chapter of the book is growing organic corn and soybeans and selling them. But you know where he has to sell them to? He has to sell them to a buyer who has a rail car downtown near the grain elevator, and he'll take his organic corn and soybeans, and and the rail car, when it's full, gets shipped to Oregon, all the way across the country, to to an operation that's um, doing organic animal feed.
0: Um, So why aren't more people thinking along the idea of buying local. Because if you go into the average supermarket, they are kind of catering to the sales of these big food and agribus- agribusiness firms. So yeah, is, that, is, that, is that because of just the advertising that we're all subjected to?
1: Advertising is, is what you see. What you don't see is the pay to play that happens in big supermarkets where, where the, big, the big producers control the shelves. I mean they they determine how much gets supplied and how much how it gets displayed and what gets promoted.
0: They're actually paying the supermarkets?
1: Yeah, there's actually I mean it's 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 part of a, a whole negotiation that happens like where is it going to be on the shelves and how much how much do we get to how much do we have it up front where people wow. can see it and how much shelf space do we get? But the I mean to get back to your original question, I I think it it really gets back to government policy. And, you know, my background is as a policy research and economics. And I think the economics of this go beyond individual consumer demand and increasing consumer choice. That's a good thing to have happen. But what needs to happen is a Green New Deal. That's what needs to happen. Because so what is that? Well, in agriculture, there's big debates and discussions and very rich proposals coming out for The equivalent of a Green New Deal, which would be a remaking of agricultural systems to be more sustainable, both in terms of their emissions of greenhouse gases and to be more environmentally sound in general. That would involve, among other things, large payments for environmental services, conditioning farm payments on environmental performance and stewardship, which we don't really do much anymore. So, so all of, of those subsidies, out,
0: yeah. Go all those on.
1: subsidies instead of just feeding more overproduction of corn and soybeans would include payments for taking your land out of production to put it in grasslands and giving incentives to do exactly that kind of thing. As some call it carbon farming, basically pay people to carbon to sequester carbon on their farms. That's a I think, an oversimplified way to look at it, but but it captures the concept, which is the best place to store carbon is in the soil. You can take it out of the air and put it in the soil and keep it there right? if you do it right, and we're doing it all wrong. So if we can change the incentives that come mainly from government, and government can influence how businesses operate as well, and the incentives that that, that, that businesses operate under and really change, change those farms so they look a little bit more like what Matt Liebman was describing with a third of their land in grasslands.
0: What do you think the chances are of this happening when, like you said, agribusiness, I think you, I forgot how you described the lobbies, but it was like they, they're not only lobbying, they're actually writing the policy.
1: Yeah, Iowa's tough because they, they really control the Iowa legislature. But that said, I mean, there's a lot of pushback and, and there's interesting push, pushback in interesting ways from farmers. One of the things that people don't realize is that farmers themselves, you know, the image in the coastal, among the coastal elites, shall we say, is that farmers are getting these big subsidies to do the wrong thing and they're, they're doing well. And the reality is that farmers are in, are in terrible shape. They get, terribly low prices for their crops because they overproduce everything because all the, all the subsidies and incentives make them overproduce. Right. So they get low prices for their crops, and then they have to buy from an ever-limited number of buyers as these big conglomerates get, get more concentrated. You know, in the last, I guess it's two years, we've seen the number of seed companies go down dramatically. Dow and DuPont merged. Syngenta was taken over by a Chinese conglomerate called ChemChina, and Bayer bought Monsanto. So you have this already incredibly concentrated sector that is now even more concentrated, and it means that farmers may only have one source, one company to buy seeds from, and those companies jack up the price because they control the market. I think the Green New Deal is an interesting response to this to this broader crisis that that the powers that be aren't taking our long-term future seriously enough. And that includes agriculture and agriculture policy. So I think that's a really important initiative and a place where serious and important changes can be made. The other that I, I, I really don't want people to forget is we've got to get money out of politics. We have to rescue our democracy. It's not an accident that my colleague, Frances Moore LePay, author of Diet for a Small Planet, which will ha- come out in a 50th anniversary edition next year, got fed up with watching the same things happen for 50 years with nobody taking her warning seriously about a uh, more environmental, environmentally sustainable approach to, to our food systems. And she's now working full-time on democracy reform in the United States, on getting money out of politics.
0: I'm a little fuzzy on exactly how they're controlling the narrative for everyday people. I mean, I understand that they're controlling the narrative in terms of the government and what they're doing for the supermarkets, but why is it that your everyday person actually believes that you know, agro-giants like Monsanto and, and GMO seeds is the solution to feeding world hunger? Why, why is it that the scientific studies we're looking at are showing this, and the major universities support this, and you know one of my best friends was the spokesperson for the american academy of Dietet, the the American Dietetics Association, and she firmly believed that GMOs were necessary to feed the growing population, and this is someone who has a master's degree in public health so why why is that the consensus among the public at large and in academia?
1: Well, the agribusiness has controlled the United States narrative for a long, long time, for decades, probably a good, arguably a good 50 years, longer, 60, 70 years. And that's the way the Midwest got developed. That's the way U.S. agriculture went. That's the way we in the United States have come to understand agricultural development and what it looks like. We see massive yields of corn and soybeans coming off of farms, and we think that's feeding the world when all it's doing is feeding ethanol refineries and factory farms. It's not feeding the hungry in developing countries at all. Mm. None of that makes its way to developing countries in terms of of actual food. The the middle class in in middle-income countries like China are the ones buying all the meat, uh, not the poor. So we're, we're not feeding the poor. And the argument that we are and that we need all these technologies to do so, the the most the National Academy of Sciences study on genetically modified foods, and you could tell this to your friend, showed that they did not increase yields at all.
0: Wow. That, so this is a lie we're being told.
1: It's a lie you're being told. And it's a lie that we feed the world. It's a lie that we need all these technologies to feed the world. And it's actually even a lie that what we produce is food. Mm. It's not food, Mm. it's feed.
0: For cattle and chickens and...
1: Pigs and chickens. And I mean, Iowa is dotted with ethanol refineries and factory hog farms.
0: I imagine one could argue that the animals are then food, though. That we're growing... Well, the animals are... Right?
1: Are then... The animals are then food. Absolutely. They're not generally... I mean, in this country, the poor eat meat in the... Developing world, that's not, that's a luxury. Um, you don't start eating meat in any significant degree until you're, until you're, have a, have a slightly higher income, unless it's animals that you.
0: So it sounds like you're saying it's like a less efficient, it's a less
1: efficient right. way and of, the, of. And that was the argument food. that Francis Moore Lappe made so convincingly. And really, for the first time in 50 years ago in Diet for a Small Planet, the, the basic premise was. That it is wildly inefficient to feed edible food to animals and to eat meat instead of that edible food. That, 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 if we're worried about feeding, making sure we have enough food for the world, we have plenty of food for the world, but not if we feed it all to animals. That remains.
0: Because it takes it more takes land. Times
1: the, I mean, it takes what? 10, 10 pounds of grain to produce a, a pound of beef. Yeah, I mean it's just it's from an energy perspective, a caloric and protein creation perspective. It's wildly inefficient.
0: So, what would you say is the ideal diet for someone who's wanting to eat better, both for their own health and the health of the planet? What's one change the everyday person could make?
1: Well, there are a variety of, of movements that are helping take us in the right direction, and some are available to probably some of your listeners in their local areas. Farmers markets are brilliant. Sourcing locally is a great thing, not just because you cut down the food miles that it takes to get the food there, but the food grown is actually of much, much, much higher quality and you're supporting local businesses in the process. That's, that's a great thing. Um, eating less meat than the average American eats is an absolutely critical thing to do. In the long run, both for our health and for the health of the planet, I, I do say that with the caveat that um, one of the one of the sayings that some of the sustainable some of the um, the sustainable livestock producers will say to you, it's not the cow, it's the how. It's not.
0: It's the way it's grown. It's
1: the way it's produced that matters, and cows mm-hmm. aren't evil. Beef isn't evil if it's grown and produced in the right way. The vast majority in the world is not produced in the right way. They're burning right. down the, the Amazon. Brazilian right. farmers are burning down the Amazon to create pasture land for industrial or raised beef cattle. Yeah. That's not a solution, obviously.
0: And this is not only detrimental to the environment and contributes to a lot of the epidemics we're seeing in terms of cancer, diabetes, those kinds of health problems. But is it also linked to the rising incidence of global viruses like COVID-19, for example? I've, I've heard that that's actually connected to encroaching on wild animal territory, like yeah. is happening in the burning of the Amazon. Yeah,
1: that's one of the... Uh, they're still trying to sort out, of course, exactly what, what the um, source and transmission process was for that. But but all indications are it came from wild animals in China. Um, there's a lot of viruses have come from, from trans, transferred from wild animals into, uh, the human population. The AIDS, HIV was a, originally came from, from wild animals. H1N1 flu virus came from wild animals originally. And the, the concern in the COVID case is that, is that, the wild, the wild food trade in China, as small farmers were pushed out further and further from their traditional lands and take, and meat production was taken over by ch- big Chinese factory farms, they, they were on the borders of, of an encroaching on native habitat for wild animals. There was a, right. a traditional market for eating wild animals in China and that the possibility of human-wild animal interaction increased with that proximity and that, and that market. So that's the concern. The other concern, though, and I think this is what's lost um, in the larger debate and where we hopefully will learn a lot from this, this COVID catastrophe and, and reform what we do, is that factory farms are the perfect breeding ground for viruses, these factory farms are incubators. They are working petri dishes for for the spread because the populations are are genetically uniform. There's no resistance from any of them because they've all been bred to be uniform. They're in close quarters. They're not in good health. And and viruses can spread very, very quickly. And then it's been shown that those viruses can spread to humans. The H one N one virus spread According to the patient zero was a farm family in Veracruz, Mexico, where the the father in the family had worked in a Smithfield uh, packing plant, and likely they don't know brought it home on his shoes into his household. Yeah, there's a a very interesting, very smart um, researcher out there named named Rob Wallace who wrote a book called big farms make big flu. And he's been writing very persuasively um, about how we need to take this as a warning sign and really reform the way we, we manage our animal agriculture.
0: Well, thank you so much, Tim, for this illuminating conversation. Is there anything else you want to share that I may have forgotten to ask?
1: Well, I guess I could do some shameless self-promotion and say that my book eating tomorrow is available at your at your favorite bookseller online and otherwise and your, your listeners probably have a lot of time to read right now um, <laughs> so I, I could I could be a good, a good contribution to your reading list
0: perfect well we we will definitely put a link to that in the show notes and encourage everyone to pick up that book and read it and thank you again for being with us here today on the future of food thank you Thanks for listening everyone. Visit us online at futurefood.fm. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or listen to us wherever you get your podcasts and put the power to save the planet on your plates and on your playlist. I'm Ivy Joven. Future of Food is produced by Lee Schneider, music by Epidemic Sound. We're part of the Future X Podcast Network.